In a career spanning more than half a century, Joe Torre has excelled as a player, a manager, and now a Major League Baseball executive. Uh, I'm so close to baseball, I felt I wanted to do something significant in, in, a, in a, some kind of position. The man who once led the sport in batting average hits and RBIs shares how he overcame an abusive upbringing. Your sister Ray pulls out a kitchen knife, he goes for a gun. It was fear, he was a bully. As well as detractors throughout the league. You're fired by the Braves, you're fired by the Mets, you're fired by the Cardinals. My, my emotions were like this. To ultimate success with the Yankees, who he led to four World Series victories in five years. I told players, I said, I didn't want to only win one World Series, I wanted to win three in a row. And this coming from a guy who, who's never, never been to one. Torrey opens up about the most emotional series of his time in New York. President Bush throws out the first pitch and talk about, you know, high wire act. His notorious departure from the organization. I felt they were trying to find a way for me to either quit or, or do badly. And his newest role as MLB's chief baseball officer. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I want to talk to you about your personality and mentality in terms of managing, and both kind of go hand in hand. I knew about you heading into the interview, but didn't know a lot about you until I read your book. And I was taken a bit back by uh, what you said about how self-conscious you were growing up. In what ways? Well, it, I, I was, um I'm the youngest of five children, and my brother Frank is the next oldest, and we're still eight and a half years difference in, in age. And I just was a very shy kid. Uh, I, I didn't have any confidence in myself. In fact, I, I'll give you an idea. Now, I played 16 years in the big leagues, managed for close to 30 years in the big leagues. I didn't want to go out for my high school baseball team because I was afraid I wouldn't make it. I mean, and I, and I knew I could play baseball, but I right. was just shy to the point of not having any confidence in myself. You, you speak about, you know, lack of confidence in high school, yet you're still, you know, batting 500 in high school, which for people that, you know, don't know baseball, hitting the ball one every two times is great, considering, you know, 30% you're a, right. a really talented ball player. And, um, you know, you don't, coming out of high school, uh, get any big league offers. In fact, uh, one scout said to your brother Frank, who was a baseball player at the time, I actually uh, you know, had the quote via telegram. He says, not only is he not a major league prospect, he's not even a pro prospect, yet you go on to have a very successful baseball career, getting 2,300 hits, an MVP uh, you know, award, uh, nine-time All-Star. And in terms of adversity, it wasn't just then, but it was also later on with managing because you're fired by the Braves, you're fired by the Mets, you're fired by the Cardinals, and then you end up 55 years old going on to win four World Series and six pennants. So even though you lack the confidence, in terms of motivation, what enabled you to kind of stay motivated uh, amid the adversity? Well, first off, uh, Graham, you gotta understand one thing. I was very fortunate. You know, kids who grew up in a similar type environment uh, probably easily led in maybe a wrong direction. You know, I had great brothers and sisters and uh, my mom, uh, and I, I was fortunate to have an ability to play baseball. I could hide out playing baseball. You know, I get the bat in my hand or, you know, I was a pitcher in high school. I mean, I, I felt confident when I did that. 
And I, but the, the thing about it, what's interesting, and maybe it, maybe it, it, it was a driving force for my success. In order to feel good about myself, I felt that I had to perform. You know, even at the major league level, you know, if I went 0 for 4, hit into a double play, and we didn't win the ball game, and I would lament about the fact that I was responsible for the team losing. Uh, so, you know, I, I needed to perform to feel good about myself. So, trust me, my major league career, even though maybe, uh, you know, statistically was fine, you know, my, my emotions were like this. And I really didn't understand that until after I had stopped playing. I just, uh, you know, it, it was just very, it was a weird feeling. You just go on a terror when you come over to the Yankees. You mentioned the six pennants, the four World Series in five years, 14 consecutive playoff appearances, which ties a record. Uh, but Pettit said, uh, who you managed for a while, in the years we were winning, we expected to win, everybody. And when we didn't, it was devastating. Explain that mentality well, or that mindset. My, my, first of all, my first year there in spring training, and I always felt, and when I, the thing about it, I, I thought I had to do something different because, you know, you get fired three times, you say, you know, you may want to do something different. And I remember picking up Bill Parcells' book. It was, it was his coaching book. And I was uh, doing some exercise. I was on the bike or the Stairmaster or wherever I was. And, and I'm reading his book, and I'm just sort of thumbing through it. And I, and, and I see the head of one chapter, uh, it, it, the heading said, if you believe in something, stay with it. Well, I closed the book. I'm not going to change because, you know, if, you, if you're together as long as, you know, managers and players are together over the course of a year, you're going to be, you know, people are going to see right through you if you're trying to be something you're not. Uh, so I basically, that first spring, I told players, I said, I didn't want to only win one World Series. I wanted to win three in a row. And uh, the reason I said that is because I've seen so many. And this coming from a guy who, who never, never even been won a playoff game before. And I looked around, I said, every one of my coaches, every one of these guys have been in the World Series. I said, except me. And I just felt that I've, I've seen championship clubs as a fan, whether it's football, you know, basketball, uh, you know, whatever it was, where they'd win, and then where were they? They didn't win the next year. I didn't even get to the playoffs. And I just felt that in order to validate what we hopefully would do, that we had to just continue to work at it. Because, you know, to me, and I, I use this in many meetings, guys, you only borrow this. You know, you can only play baseball for this period of time. There's a window about that wide. And, yeah, you know, get the most out of it. And, and you know, the, of course, the three stops, uh, Graham, before that certainly, you know, contributed to my thinking. And you mentioned continuing to work at it. You've coached some of the best players in the game. How would you characterize their mindset of trying to continuously improve? Well, it, it was just, and George Steinbrenner was certainly a big part of that because he kept driving at you. He kept, he was never satisfied, never satisfied. Uh, and it was just something that, you know, we won in 96, and then we lost in 97, because 96 was a magical year. We weren't supposed to win. We were, we were underdogs going into the World Series, losing the first two games to the Braves, and then, you know, winning four straight. Uh, you know, we won in 90, 97. We came back, lose the first round against Cleveland, and guys were sort of stunned. I remember having to peel 
Bernie Williams off the steps after the game because he he made the last out in, in game five of the division series and he would, he just couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. And I, I said, Bernie, you know, it, it, it doesn't always happen that when you swing the bat, there's a line drive attached to it. You know, sometimes there's an out. And so they came back and uh, my team came back in 98 with a sense of purpose. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, we didn't start out very well. I think we lost three out of the first four or four out of the first five games on uh, on the road trip and we wind up winning 114 games for the season, 125 including the playoffs in the World Series. It was really a magical year of a ball club that uh, just was so determined they weren't going to take uh, no for an answer. So. What made George Steinbrenner successful? Oh God, he just said that the Yankees were, they, they were his baby. Um, very impatient, he had a football mentality but you talk to Don Mattingly, who played for him for a good period of time, and he liked George because he sort of he feels like George drove the players. You know, a lot of players complained about it because he got very personal and he, you know, as I say, he, he lacked a lot of patience. But uh, our relationship was good for the most part. I mean, I'm not saying we always agreed on everything, but uh, he. He just took the, the Yankee team to heart and to the city of New York, too, because he put, uh, I know they spent over $200 million a year for, you know, payroll, but he put his money back into that team. That's the one thing that uh, George Steinbrenner, uh, you know, did for the city of New York, and they certainly appreciated that. Your, your brother, Frank, who you mentioned, you know, you were the youngest, he was the second youngest, yet still eight years older. You really idolized him, even though he was very tough on you. He played for the Milwaukee Braves. Uh, you and your mom actually sat in the upper deck of a World Series game when he hit a uh, home run. You had the chance to go in the clubhouse after the game, and you kind of credit that with making the World Series your dream. So when you finally got there, winning it, how did it compare to what you expected it to be like? It was uh, better than you could ever dream. Uh, but it's it's unreal. But but '96 was such an emotional year. I mean, my uh, you know we were in first place most of the year. But in June, I lose my brother Rocco, my oldest brother. He had a heart attack and died. Uh, and at the time, my, my wife called me. I was in Cleveland. We were in Cleveland for a doubleheader. And she calls me, she says, are you sitting down? And I thought for sure it was my brother Frank because he had, he had had a massive heart attack years earlier. And, uh, you know, I know he was struggling. And it was my other brother who passed away. And then in October, right before game six, my brother Frank has this heart transplant. So it was, a, it, it was really an emotional year. And, and, you know, having won the World Series, and he just felt like this, this completed the circle in my career. Because I just felt after witnessing the World Series, and uh, I like to use the term, I said, you know, when you, I, I, it's no fun watching somebody else eat a hot fudge sundae. Uh, but when you get to that World Series and, and just taste that success, you, you, you never get tired of it. And it's interesting because you spoke in your book about how much you hated watching some of these teams celebrate championships before you'd actually uh, won one yourself. You mentioned your brother Frank and needing the transplant. He was in the intensive care unit of a hospital when you won the World Series. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the next morning that you spoke to him. Explain how neat it must have been to be able to follow through with your promise in terms of uh, the ring. 
It was, because, uh, you know, he had given me the ring from the 58 team, even though the, the Braves lost, he still get a, a ring. It's a championship ring, but it's not a world championship ring. And I, I had lost it, basically. Um, Must have been a great conversation telling oh, him that. Oh, goodness gracious, it wasn't too good. So um, it, it was when, you know, we won game five in Atlanta and came back, and I get, a, I get, it's an off day now. I get a call the next morning that they found a match for my brother, and he's going to go in for the, for the transplant. And, it's gonna, and I'm sort of stunned because I hadn't slept, and, you know, I get a call from the doctor, and we had a workout, and I went over there to see him afterwards, and, you know, we, we, we chatted and whatever. It was unbelievable. I mean, it's just, this was like an out-of-body experience for me just to, you know, have all these things going on at one time. I remember when we went over to the hospital, Reggie Jackson went over with me to, to see Frank because he had, you know, been friends. He, he's friends with Frank. And, um, and then I remember when we won the World Series that next day, which was Saturday, Frank called me. He says, well, kid, you did it. You know, and and you know what? You know, you, I, you talked about my brother, and uh, I, I idolized him, uh, but I hated him too because he he just drove me so hard. He he criticized me a great deal, uh, and any anything any article that's written about me didn't mean as much to me as when Frank would you know compliment me on something. And you know, when he said, "Well, kid, you did it." You know, that meant more to me than anything else. And uh, it was, you know, never in my wildest dreams thinking that we were going to go to the World Series five more times. I want to bring you back to your younger days. You know, it seemed you had a great mother growing up, loving, caring, but uh, you had a tough childhood, it seemed, largely due to your father, who was uh, abusive. And you, you speak about it in your book. You recall uh, one instance where your sister Ray pulls out a kitchen knife. He goes for a gun. Uh, he, he hit your mom, was verbally abusive to you. How would you describe what your father was like? It was fear. He was a bully. He was a bully, and I, and I couldn't blame it on drinking because my dad wasn't a drinker, uh, but he was just uh, a bully. He used to wake up my mom in the middle of the night. He'd come home with some friends and wake her up to cook for everybody. And they were talking about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning because he would work nights. He was a police detective. Uh, but I, if I saw his car in front of the house coming home from school, I'd go somewhere else until, really? he, until he left for, for work because he, it was just a lot of fear. Uh, just a lot of fear. And I, I had a relationship with him growing up, but never really addressed this because I, at that time, I, I just thought that, you know, he was a tough, you know, tough dad. And uh, even though I wasn't comfortable, I thought, you know, maybe it was just my personality as opposed to why I, I felt that way. And you said to this day, you can still see him raising his hand to your mom, but then you see nothing. It, no, I, I've never seen him hit her, and maybe it was uh, the fact that I just chose not to remember that. But the one incident you talked about, uh, he was mad at my mom and, and my sister Ray, who's the oldest in the family, she was uh, protecting my mom with this, you know, the kitchen knife. And that's when he went for his revolver in the drawer in, in the uh, dining room. And I, I was sort of at this in between both of them, and I... I went and got the knife off my sister, and I, I don't know, was I eight or nine years old, and put it on the table because you know he, he, it was just frightening that he was going to go for the gun and threaten my 
you know, my mother and my sister with a gun. And you said he never hit you, mm -mm. but that almost made it worse. Well, uh, how so? It, this fear is a, is a terrible emotion. It's a terrible emotion. Um, and, you know, sometimes the anticipation of something is, is worse than it actually happening. And, you know, that's just my feeling. I, you know, as I say, he never hit me, but the fear was always there. And it's, it's a, just a terrible emotion that, uh, again, I, I'm not over it. You know, it still crops up. Uh, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, you, you have, you know, some fearful thoughts and, and stuff like that. But at least now I, uh, I don't ignore it, but I understand it, which, which really gave me the uh, ability to share my inner feelings. What led to you creating the Joe Torre Safe at Home Foundation? Well, it, it was going into New York uh, to manage the Yankees and my wife, Allie. We have always done something geared toward children. And going to New York, Allie says, you know, what do you want to, what charity should we connect ourselves with? I said, how about domestic violence? It sort of caught her off guard. And um, she, it was Allie's idea to, uh, to you know, have the, instead of being care providers, to have our Safe at Home Foundation be geared toward, you know, education. Uh, and so we put safe rooms in schools, and we name them after my mom, Margaret, call it Margaret's Place. And we've had great success with the program. How would you explain what the goals are? Well, the goals, uh, in my case, you know, when we first started our foundation, we are going to have our first gala. Uh, I remember going to a, a middle school in the Bronx, and we had a camera crew following me to sort of do a little B-roll for, you know, for our foundation dinner. So to the kids, I said, we'll talk about baseball in a little bit. I just want to explain what this, what this camera crew is doing. And I explained about our foundation and my dad abusing my mom. I look out into the classroom, and uh, eight or nine kids are going, it was like we struck a nerve. So basically, our, we have a master's level counselor in the safe room, Margaret's Place, and we have peer leadership programs, but it's basically there for these kids to go in and find a safe place to sit and talk about it. We have literature in there. We, you know, we have, if they want to read books or play games, uh, it's, a, it's an emotional place. You know, when I go visit a Margaret's place, uh, we have eight of them in the New York area and, and the Brooklyn and Queens Family Justice Centers we work at with the, um, with the mayor of New York. Plus, we opened a, a school in, in Mar Vista in Los Angeles. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the counselor, it really helps these kids open up, and we give them tools to deal with what's going on in their lives and, uh, you know, help them find a safe haven. How about the best story you've heard from one of the kids you've helped? Well, I read emotional notes all the time about, you know, kids who have, it seems like they they have this, this brick wall that they're going into and they, you know, they talk about the counselor who, who helps them, you know, deal with this and this is the best place and a lot of the spelling isn't right, you know, but the, 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 the pulse is there and the feeling is there and it's, it's wonderful. But one of the best stories for me was, was a youngster who was going to go join a street gang and he, he made a visit to a Margaret's place in the school he was going to and, um, and then he went back again and he went back again and it's part of the curriculum and 
all of a sudden he's, you know, he's applying to colleges. And, and it, it, it's just this much that'll have a kid go this way or this way. And uh, as I say, I'm very proud of, of what we do at Margaret's Place because it's, um, it's necessary. Uh, you know, I, I, I think when people talk about uh, domestic violence or, or violence period, they're talking about, oh, it's, that, that's a woman's issue. Well, no, there's, there's more involved. You know, there are children that, uh, in my case, I wasn't physically harmed, but it still affected me. And that, that, that's an issue. For every woman that goes to a shelter, there are two kids that go with her. So there are a lot of kids going into their adult life that certainly have issues that uh, are going to affect their lives. And uh, a big, big problem is the low self-esteem. And, and as I say, I, when I, I had the ability to play baseball, so it was, I was lucky. But you have kids who are probably easily led because of the low self-esteem that, uh, you know, you can go in the wrong direction. Not everybody had that escape no. like you did. Um, I want to touch on some other notable moments mm -hmm. from your career. Uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, you know, after the terrorist attacks, of the Yankees games that followed that tragedy, what sticks out the most? Well, the emotion of the whole thing. Uh, in fact, you know, it was a, <clears throat> it was a Tuesday. We were scheduled to play a game. Roger Clemens was supposed to pitch. And uh, I was supposed to go to a fundraiser in Manhattan, a luncheon. And then I get a call from the car service. Well, that's not going to happen, you know. And I turned on TV. I saw what was happening. My daughter, let me see, I guess uh, she was like five years old. And uh, I was trying to find a TV that had something other than what I was watching. <clears throat> and it, it this was Tuesday, and by Saturday, the commissioner had already made up his mind we were going to start play on Monday, I think it was. And so we went, uh, the, the, the lasting impression for me is this Saturday after 9-11, when we went with whoever we had left, because, yeah, I mean, Clemens and Pettit, they got in the car and drove to Texas. Guys wanted to be with their families, which is understandable, and by that time, families who were there for the summer had gone home because it was, you know, after Labor Day and, uh, and everybody was heading to where they were living. So guys were heading to be with their families because that was the one thing I wanted to do was be with my family at right. the time. But we went, to, um, we went to the staging area at the Javis Center on that Saturday. We had about two or three vans full of players that were there and coaches. and. And uh, we went there, and then we went to uh, St. Vincent's Hospital. Unfortunately, there was nobody there because they weren't finding survivors. You had some, you know, some firefighters there from uh, smoke inhalation. And then we went to the armory, which was the most sensitive of all, because that's where all the families were, were housed, waiting for results from DNA about their loved ones. And I didn't think that we had any right being in there because it's such a personal thing. But uh, we had somebody go in. They wanted us to come in. And we went in, and Bernie Williams, who, who was one of the players that was with us, went over to some woman because they started motioning, come on over here. Uh, and he said to her, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say. He says, but you look like you need a hug. And it, 
I don't know how long we spent there, but it was, uh, th that's the most lasting memory and the most vivid memory I have of the 9-11 uh, week. Uh, and then I realized at that point in time that we represented, you know, more than the Yankees there. We represented the city of New York and I got that point across and I didn't have to convince anybody about it. Uh, it was a very emotional rest of the season and, and postseason. There have been so many different storied moments during, uh, you know, your time with the Yankees and, uh, I mean, your time managing for that matter. Um, when a hit ended a game, um, you know, I, I can think of moment with Aaron Boone, Luis Gonzalez during the World Series, the Diamondbacks. What would be your favorite walk-off moment? Well, I'll tell you that um, Aaron Boone, who, if you think of one instance, Game 7 situation when Pedro had us, like, think about 5 nothing, and then, you know, we come back and, and tie that game and then win it with Aaron's home run. Uh, that certainly is lasting. But the World Series, and, and probably the best World Series I was a part of, and it was a losing World Series, was 2001, uh, where we lose two games in Arizona. We come back to New York. You know, President Bush throws out the first pitch. Uh, and, you know, it's, you talk about, you know, high wire act. Uh, and then we win that game. Clemens wins that game. And then the next day, uh, you know, we're, we're losing by a couple of runs. Tino hits a home run in the ninth inning to tie the game up. And then Jeter, uh, after midnight on the 31st of October, uh, hits the home run to, to put us in a situation where we tied at two games apiece. And then the next night, it was like uh, Groundhog Day. You know, we had Brocious two runs behind. He hits a two-run home run, and and then a Soriano uh, uh, a Soriano base hit to to put us up three games to two. We we lost over there, and uh, the, the next two games. But it was the most exciting and emotional World Series that I was a part of. Derek Jeter, what makes him special? Uh, he's He's a very special young man. He calls you Mr. T, right? Yeah, he missed, well, he started out calling me, you know, Mr. T, and then, uh, you know, now it, it's it's gotten to Buddy now. Now we're Buddy, uh, but we're still very close. Um, he's uh, he's a special young man. He, you know, I met him when he was 21 years old, and uh, that first year in '96, uh, a lot of the older players were looking for him to do something because uh, he had those leadership abilities in in him, and everybody sensed it. Uh, but he came to work every day, you know, never had an excuse, uh, just went out there and played all the time. And uh, he, uh, there were days he'd, you know, he'd look at me and I'd look at him and it was like sort of give you a half nod saying, okay, I'll take care of this. And, and he, uh, he was a great leader on that club, even though he was reluctant to, when we named him captain, it really wasn't something that he was striving to be. Uh, but, you know, whether you, you gave him the title or not, it, it, he was the guy that everybody looked to. Alex Rodriguez, you said about him though, seeing his personality concerned me because you could see his focus was on individual stuff. Well, you know, he, so? well, he was concerned about putting numbers up. Right. Uh, and that really wasn't what we were all about. You know, we were all about, uh, you know, winning games. That was the only statistic that was important for us. 
But Alex, and again, you know, in his defense, he just felt if he put certain numbers that the wins would take care of themselves. So I think he put pressure on himself. because it's, it's a lot less pressurized as a player if you're up there hitting and trying to think about maybe moving a runner over or knocking a runner in as opposed to I need a hit, I need a hit, I need a hit. So in a lot of ways when you're playing this team sport, it takes the pressure off trying to get two hits a game or three hits a game because you're just more concerned about how can I help us win this at bat. And, uh, you said the team mentality started to change when he came over. Well, we wanted to try to find a way to make him comfortable. Uh, and as I say, he came from, you know, it was Texas, and then before that he was in Seattle. But he was always, it was always Alex, and, and again, taking nothing away from the other players on that team, but he was Alex, and the other guys were sort of looking up to him for him to, to be the leader of the club. Well, he came with us, and everybody's on that same level. So, you know, it, it, was, it was just a different mindset, I think, that, you know, he had to, uh, to get used to. In fact, I had breakfast with him that first day when he came over, and I said, I said don't try to do everything yourself. And I told Giambi the same thing, because he was sort of that leader over there in Oakland before we signed him as a free agent. So it's just something that uh, I've always been uh, a, a proponent of the team concept. I know we, we glorify a lot of individual achievement, you know, nowadays, but to, to me, anything, it, it's so much more satisfying. You know, and I want a batting title, I want an MVP. But as a manager, when you see all these, you know, personalities come together to want to, attreat, uh, want to all achieve the same thing, it's so satisfying to a manager that, uh, it really makes my job easy. You said something in your book, which I think people who haven't actually read the book would find interesting in that nobody has ever worked harder in my memory than this guy. In what ways? Physically, physically. Um, you know, spring training, uh, he'd be out there at seven in the morning uh, working out at third base because that was a new position for him. Uh, Larry Bow would work him hard. This kid worked hard, worked hard on his conditioning. Uh, took real, you know, good care of himself in, in getting ready to play the game. The game was his whole life. Uh, but again, you know, he came on board when we had had a great deal of success, and I think he put a lot of pressure on himself trying to still be the guy that everybody looked to because that's what he was with every other team he was with. And, you know, the Yankees were different. The Yankees were different. They, they, uh, they had a group that, you know, sort of shared the wealth, you know, as far as uh, the ability to play together and and I think Alex just put a lot of pressure on himself trying to do too much too soon. You overheard Roger Clemens one time <laughs> speaking to his mom. Boy, you uh, did about do some <laughs> research. <laughs> you, you overhear him speaking to his mom. Explain what he was saying and how you handled it, like in addressing it with him. Yeah, I, it was in Seattle. It's funny when you when you mention things and they come to mind where he was sitting because he was sitting behind my desk because I you know he wanted to call his mom. And uh, I said, here, use my phone, you know, and I, <coughs> excuse me, and I, I overheard him, well, you know, mom, I'm just trying to fit, because he was struggling. Yeah, same as Alex, really. He was struggling early on, but he was trying to fit in. I said, forget that fitting in stuff. Go out there and be the guy you are, because pitchers, as opposed to players, pitchers can afford to be 
I, I can put up with pitchers that are selfish because they only do it one day a week. So they need to, we need to cater to them, so to speak, emotionally. And, you know, he was trying to, um, you know, basically be one of the guys and take his turn every five days and, and whatever. So he really lost his aggressiveness. You know, because he's animated, and, and sometimes those antics don't sit well with, with me. Right. Uh, and I just reassured him at that point in time. I said, just, you know, if there's something I've got to tell you to do or not do, I'll tell you, but just go out there and be who you are. The 2007 season with the Yankees, you called it the worst year of your professional life. Looking back now, how do you feel about how things ended? Well, I, I, you know, I, I broke down because we we um, we clinched a, a wild card berth uh, in Tampa, and um, it was just an emotional year. I didn't think we had any chance to get the postseason. They never they never stopped trying, uh, and then, you know, when it was over with, about am I coming back? Am I not coming back? Well, I had in my mind that I wasn't going to be there anymore. Um, it, it, and again, my wife says, Joe, you're, you're probably too sensitive. You're too sensitive. And I admit, she was probably right. Uh, but I, as it turned out, I think we were, there were two parties, the Yankees and myself, that really didn't know how to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because- but, I mean, there were some hurt, hurt feelings there too, though. I think, I mean, you, you said um, you'd like to think if you work for somebody for a certain period of time that they trust you somewhat, and I never got that, even when we were winning, I never got that. Yeah, well, I think that was my sensitivity coming out, but, uh, you know, I just felt, especially toward the end, the last few years, uh, that it was, um, you know, all of a sudden it was, I, I just didn't feel I was being trusted. I felt they were trying to, you know, find a way for me to either quit or or do badly and um, you know we've certainly you know paved the road since then but I, I, I was a lot of uh, a great deal of anxiety and stress on on my part and and I when I left there and I know they offered me a contract for the for the one year in 2008 and the only the only way I would have taken it if they had guarantee that I wouldn't be fired during that year because at that point in time my feeling was I only wanted to manage one more year mm -hmm. and um, they wouldn't do that I left um, and then the Dodgers called which is something that was unexpected and uh, I, I'm sort of happy it happened because it gave me an opportunity to stay in baseball and yet get away from where I was. Two jobs preceding your Yankees job, uh, the Braves. After you were fired by the Braves, you're sitting watching television with your wife and some uh, celebrities being interviewed on TV, and the interviewer asks, how would you like to be remembered? Right. Uh, your wife turns to you to take the conversation. Yeah, from she says, how do you want to be remembered, or how do you think you're going to be remembered? Because here I am. Um, you know, I'm just fired from, from the Braves. And, and do you remember what you said? Oh, yeah, I remember what I said. As someone who's never realized his dream. And she said to me, why, you dead? And I said, well, boom, you know. And uh, she says, you know, you got a long way to go. You're not done. Yeah, but that's, that's my wife's personality. And uh, that's, she sort of slapped me back to reality with that one. What about now? How would you like to be remembered? 
Well, uh, you know, that World Series ring makes a lot of difference in your personality. I can tell you that. And, and you know, we have, I have four of them. Uh, I, I just feel that someone who um, always respected the game and was always fair. Um, you know, I had a lot of players I had trouble with, which makes me feel good. You know, I had trouble with David Wells. I had trouble with uh, Jimmy Lairitz. I had trouble with Jeff Nelson. I had trouble with Ruben Sierra, but you know what? They all came back to the Yankees and played for us again, which made me feel good because that's the kind of environment we created. Really a pleasure, Joe. Okay. Thank Thanks you for great. making the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.